Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Breed of Stories podcast. A show that provides you with unique personal perspectives to what's going on in the world. We are your hosts at United World College in Mostar. Michelle Wang from China. And Alta Kashura from Poland. Every week, we're interviewing people from Ethiopia, Colombia, and so many more where they share their stories. Visit us on our Facebook page, Bridge of Stories, and join us on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you would like to listen. Thousands of people are flooding the streets of Venezuela to protest against its own government, the presidency of Nicolas Maduro. The economy in this country has contracted by almost 20%. Around 92% of the population lives below poverty line. The sleep decline in GDP in these past few years has been more severe than that of the Great Depression. Today's Venezuela is encountering an ongoing political turmoil. After the sitting President Maduro's re-election in May 2018, his government was condemned as illegitimate. Another political rival stepped in. Juan Guaido took a public oath to serve as the acting president of Venezuela and quickly made his way to become recognized by a big part of the international community. Today, we're delighted to have Alejandro from Venezuela on Bridge of Stories podcast to give you an insight into Venezuela from a personal perspective. We are very excited to be joined by an amazing guest today. Hi, Alejandro. Hello, guys. It's nice to meet you. So, can you please tell us your name, where you're from, where you're studying at? Uh, I'm Alejandro Maris. I come from Venezuela. I'm a second year in UWC Monster, and I'll be graduating very soon. Uh, great. So, today we are discussing Venezuela and the ongoing issues uh, in your country. Can you please tell us a little bit about what the country is going through right now in terms of presidency and how did the problems emerge? Well, yeah, okay, that's a, that's a very good question. You know, the, the problems emerged like in 1999, where the, the regime was elected in a completely uh, democratic elections. So in 1999, Hugo Chavez was elected the, the new president of Venezuela, and he established this uh, socialist regime, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. He took over, and then in 2002, there was a coup. He got toppled by the opposition, but the opposition was incapable to maintain power, so they got toppled by the previous regime, and then, well, he continued this uh, oppression of the people until he managed to completely, uh, well, we might be able to say destroy, uh, but uh, inhabilitate the country to actually use its institutions to create democracy. So in the end, he died in 2013, and the accepted date is the 5th of March of that year, and his successor was uh, again elected. Some say with fraudulent elections and sham elections, uh, uh, Nicolas Maduro was elected the president, and that's the problem we have now. Well, you might know that there is a hyperinflation of 10 million percent predicted by the IMF. We have uh, three of the top five most uh, dangerous cities in the world. Uh, 82% of our population lives on their $1 a day. Oh, wow. So those are very big problems, and they have been caused because the, of several things that I, I'm assuming we'll discuss later on. But that's essentially the gist of what's happening right now. So we're just wondering, why is Maduro seen as unpopular these days? Did some of his policies cause negative impacts on the people? Do you know of any? Can you personally relate to any of them? So the, the problem with the Venezuelan government right now, and the problem that was uh, had, had, the Venezuelan government had before Maduro was that its policies were meant to um, make happy a, a size of the population that was essentially the lowest classes of society, right? So there's nothing wrong with that, but the problem with is that the government tried to do this by 
putting some retrograde socialist policies on. This I mean policies that did not function within the country. Policies like uh, the government is going to pro, uh, nationalize a bunch of companies that the government simply cannot uh, make efficient. Uh, they're going to increase the wages to absurd levels that companies simply cannot maintain. In 2017, they increased the, the, the wages by 36-fold. So many companies just could not pay that, that amount and so had to fire a bunch of people and employment skyrocketed and the inflation went haywire. And that's uh, precisely the problem why he's so unpopular. There's also the problem of um, because it's started nationalizing all the industries and because the government is very inefficient because of corruption, nepotism and all these problems the government has within itself, it started uh, destroying the productive capabilities of our country. So we have uh, a lot of shortages of anything. And there are queues all over the place. So, like, if you go to a supermarket, the aisles are empty, or you have you have to just one brand of milk, one brand of, of cheese, one brand of butter, if you're able to find it. And if you find, you find that an absurd price. So, like, a, a middle-income family, like my own, like, used to buy, like, you used to buy milk, and uh, it used to be the milk that there was in the market. There was no choice to to choose whatever you want to, to eat. Uh, you only had to eat whatever that was there. So that's why he's so unpopular, and it's not essentially his fault, it's fault of the regime that he inherited from Chavez, because this would have happened to Chavez as well. The only difference is that Chavez died in the moment where the, the price of, prices of oil just plummeted from $150 to $50. That's why we, we ran out of money to import everything, that's what we used to do. Yeah, and you're talking about the inflation, and you were mentioning like the rates has reached like millions percent, which is terrible and you're mentioning shortages there were shortages of medications and food which affected a number of civilians and we found that the hunger crisis escalated to the extent that 75 of the population lost eight kilograms in weight mm-hmm. have you have ever any members of your family or your friends back home been, been impacted by that well i remember if this is very personal of course but i remember many friends of me and mine telling me when i was there in venezuela during the summer that they were very afraid that, that this uh, increase in poverty, because of course uh, inflation rises and your incomes cannot rise equally, so you start losing uh, acquisitive power. So they're like they're all, all very afraid that poverty will eventually reach us, and my parents were afraid as well. So in the end, you saw the food that my family and me were eating. It was not that we were eating less food, but the quality of the food was less, was worse. Um, several of my friends, you know, it's, it's very common in Venezuela. It might not be common in most, most parts of the Western world, but the, the, the diet is essentially based on meat. You, you eat a lot of meat. So we eat meat and lunch, we eat meat and dinner, and there's even meat during breakfast. So you, you know that someone is of a lower class, or so, someone who, is, who needs uh, financial help, if they cannot buy meat because it's essential to our diet, essential to most of the national dishes that we have, and so on and so forth. Uh, so you see many of my friends stopped eating meat during lunch or stopped eating meat during dinner. So they ate typical things that you might consider that only poor people would eat, like pasta and, and ketchup on top, and that would be their lunch. And this gladly never happened to my parents because they, they were self-employed, so they managed to pull up their, their, their the amount of money they made uh, because they wanted to. But many of the people that had a salary they couldn't do that because the companies couldn't spike the prices as, high, as fast as inflation. Were there a lot of complaints among the schools and the environment you lived in? Yeah, of course. Like my, my school was completely a uh, right-wing school, if you want to say. Uh, the the right-wing is simply the opposite of what uh, the government might, might um, you know, put forth as their policies. And, of course, by the end of, the, of my education in Venezuela, the, 
the school had to increase the prices per month. So instead of us paying an entire like um, stipendium per year or per, per semester, we had to pay it per month. And by the end of it, the, the school gave up in trying to put the prices in bolivares, which is our national currency. They put the prices in dollars. They said, well, we're going to have this as the price, and whatever the exchange rate at the moment is, you're going to have to pay the exchange rate. And the problem is that we're not using the actual exchange rate, we're using the, the black market exchange rate, because the actual exchange rate, there are around five exchange rates that the government uses, So, and they're all for the people that are work closely to the government. So at the, the exchange rate used by the common foe and the streets is the black market exchange rate, which is this um, hyperinflation that the IMF puts forth every month. Like, oh, you know, in the month of December, we had 80,000% inflation uh, this month of December of 20, 2018. And that's essentially the problem, yeah. So we see a lot of economic impacts. Um, do you think the quality of education has also been affected by this? Well, yes, of course, uh, especially like you might say that in the private sector of education, which um, sadly grew a lot during this crisis, because the quality of education in the public sector decreased sharply. Just imagine a professor in, in a normal school, in a public school, earns, uh, we, we normally, I'm assuming this is in every country, but I'm really not sure, everyone earns their salary based on how many times you earn the minimum wage. So teachers used to earn well, like five times the minimum wage per month. And we have a minimum wage per month. So just imagine your salary is just five times the minimum wage, and the minimum wage doesn't move as inflation uh, skyrockets. So when I was in Venezuela, when I arrived on August, no, sorry, on July 2018, the prices were doubling every week. So what is 100 this week, and the next week is going to be 200, and the next week is going to be 400. So if you're a professor that earns five times the minimum wage, and at the end of three months, your salary is going to be salt and water. It's not going to be worth anything. So many teachers simply left the country, there is this horrible stories of how how many like that there are many prostitutes in in Colombia that are school teachers and that they have a, a, a university degree from Venezuela because they would be winning ten times what they would be winning in Colombia being prostitutes cheap prostitutes or than they would be earning in Venezuela being professionals. Yeah, so the crisis is extremely prominent, but there are still people who support Maduro. What are their viewpoints? What do they say about? The crisis. Yeah, so like the, the, the majority of the people that support Maduro is there. So you might separate them into two parts. Either there are very poor people who need the government because the government is very smart in making them uh, vulnerable and dependent on the government. So the government has many programs, like you know the food program, the aid assistance program, the healthcare program, and they're all into these programs. And if the government ever leaves, or they believe that if this government ever leaves, then they will have, they'll be in harm's way, right? They will be, they won't have any more healthcare, they won't have any more food. Even though the, the quality of the food is terrible, they don't eat much either. Like most people in the, live in the slums eat one meal a day. But they believe, of course, that it's not the fault of the government because they have put forth this uh, narrative that the fault of this economic crisis is just the Western powers, the European Union, especially the US. It's imperialism that's destroying us, and we're trying to fight this economic war against them, and we need our allies and, uh, to, to fight against them. And uh, many of the things that the government has put forth as well is changing how they, they, they educate people. Many of the history books don't say many things, or they're not taught many things that are true. For example, many people that are still, they still believe that Maduro is the one that's supposed to, and Chavez, the ones that are supposed to save Venezuela, were the ones who installed public education, the ones who installed uh, public healthcare. That's not true. We have had public healthcare since 1958. 
And these people don't know this. They don't know that Venezuela has, for its entire history, been a socialist country. They've never been a fully right-wing, uh, capitalist country. We've always provided free things to our population because we were always uh, a country that needed to help a very large poor uh, number of poor people within the population. And that's what they don't know. So they have been indoctrinated into this narrative of the government will bring everything to you and we leave, you are doomed. So we know that Guaido is proclaiming his own presidency these days. Um, is Guaido seen as a more legitimate leader then among the Venezuelan population? How come? So the thing is that the the elections that were held, so Maduro was re-elected, right, in 2018. He was re-elected on the 20th of May. The problem with those elections was that uh, those elections included, according to the government, uh, only 48% of the population, if I'm not mistaken. It might be a, a bit more, a bit less. But it was not above 50% of the population. And those, according to our constitutions, are illegitimate elections because you don't have more than 50% of the amount of people that should vote. And uh, the problem with that is that, well, he is not considered legitimate by the international community because he made elections at the time where he shouldn't have made elections. Elections were not supposed to be called at the time. The constitution tells us, that, well, they're supposed to be in a certain day, date uh, when the mandate of a president ends. And he was not, he was not supposed to make it on the 20th of May of last year. He did not include many parties. He outlawed many parties. Many of uh, his opposition uh, leaders were in jail. Leopoldo Lopez, Antonio Ledesma, they're all in jail or they're exiles. So of course you cannot have elections if, there are no, um, if there's no one to oppose you. So many people believe that Guaido is much more legitimate because he was elected by the only democratically elected body of the country, and that's the National Assembly. Now, we might be, many people might say, well, there might be a problem with this because the National Assembly was, that was elected in 2016 was dissolved um, not uh, much after, in 2017, I believe, when the government instituted the, cons the, the Constituent National Assembly. And there's a bunch of constitutional problems with this because the Constituent National Assembly, according to our constitution, because it's a constitutional body, it's supposed to be created whenever the, the, the government wishes to change the constitution. It's supposed only to assist to change the constitution. They cannot make laws, they cannot, they cannot outlaw any other body, and they cannot uh, put anyone in jail. The problem is that the government, as executive, and uh, controls not only the National Constituent Assembly, but they also control the, the highest uh, court in the country, the Supreme Court. And the Supreme, Supreme Court allowed that uh, they said that the National Constituent Assembly was now the Constitutional Assembly, and the National Assembly was, was uh, dissolved. So you might say that Guaido is indeed the elected president, that's how we, we call it in Venezuela, like a elected president, because he was elected by the only body in the country that was a democratically elected. But then you might say, well, but this, is, this body really does have no political power. And he has no political power either. He controls no ministries, he has uh, no one in charge. He, he named a, uh, a bunch of ministers, but those ministers are in their houses. They're not doing anything. The ministers that are actually governing are the ones of the party. And the party controls pretty much everything. But the National Constituent Assembly is made of around um, five or four hundred um, deputies that are all from the Socialist Party, or they're sub-branches of the Socialist Party. So there is no disagreement within between them, and they never get together because there's nothing to discuss. Everything is, is chosen through the highest figures of the party. So we can clearly see here, like, this very much of a separation between the factions supporting Guaido and uh, factions supporting Maduro. And your country attending United World College in Mostar, which is a school that gathers people uh, from all around the world. Did this somehow change your view on the way how people from conflicted territories and conflicted factions can work together and can, communi can communicate together to find a common ground? 
Well, that, that certainly changed my view, of course. But when when I came here to WC, I realized that, and I already like we were already all kind of new. We're all in Venezuela. The, the conflict in our country is much more different than the conflicts abroad. The conflicts abroad, when you hear them, are like, well, of course, we have Syrian people that have a, a dictator who's killing its people, like literally shooting at them. And uh, other countries like Somalia, you have uh, uh, terrorist groups attacking the population. The country cannot control, uh, the government cannot control the country. You have this patch of Somalia. Somaliland is the one that's actually under constitutional rule of the government. And the other patch is just uh, a lawless land. The problem of Venezuela is, is a much more different problem. And I would even go so far as to say that it's a problem that resembles many of the dictatorship of the 20th century. We're living in a 20th century dictatorship in the 21st century, a dictatorship of socialist and uh, left-leaning ideals that just wants to control everything, and indeed they do. They control absolutely everything, and what they're doing in our country is simply smothering the people so that they can have full control of uh, whatever happens. It resembles to what the Soviets used to have, or the Eastern Bloc used to have, and, and East Germany, or even Maoist China. That's precisely what you have. But, but they have just policies that are put in place such that the government can have more power and the people are more suppressed. So, is there hope for a positive future for Venezuela? The only positive future I can see is, uh, because many people talk, well, of course, intervention, uh, let the Americans come in and topple the government, and this are all, like, I hear them and I am terrified about them. I don't want any intervention in my country, I don't want any foreign power coming to my country, because it's only going to cause further struggle, right? If uh, an American, if Americans come in, or if Russians come in, which they're already doing, the only thing they're going to do is alienate the people into, well, they are the enemy, or they are the, the heroes. The Russians will be the heroes, the Americans will be the enemy. And this civil war wouldn't, like, which would, would become a civil war, wouldn't really help us. It would only make us another Syria, or another Afghanistan, or who knows. The only positive future I see for my country is that the, the, the people rebels against the country and it's uh, something that solely comes from the people of Venezuela and not that comes from abroad. Of course, like the governments from abroad should help in like putting sanctions to our country, putting sanctions into, um, your, when I mean sanctions, I don't mean like cutting off Venezuela from the international markets. We have done, we're doing that ourselves. <laughs> we don't need any help from anyone. Uh, what I mean is like trying to get the government who's funneling money, for uh, the public money, out of the country to Andorra and Switzerland to stop that funneling out of the money, or to, to freeze their assets abroad. The US is already doing it, but not many other countries are following suit. So the only, that's the only positive future I can see, and it's very unlikely as I see it. So thank you very much, Alejandro. It was great having you at the British Stories podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I love being here and talking to you guys. Thank you, Alejandro. People starving. Lack of water and medication, a possibility of intervention from foreign powers. Venezuela is being confronted by the daunting challenges of the 21st century. A number of people are suffering from severe crisis, yet the stalemate of the situation reflects the people's compliance with Maduro's regime. While some blame the current leader for the atrocities of the economic and political deadlock, others see his government as crucial to ensure their basic needs. Yet, with the empowerment of youth, more people like Alejandro, more unity with the international community, and the willingness of the people to speak up and represent themselves, Venezuela and its citizens are expecting changes to take place on its land.